Section 22 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matea Bracic. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 37. The Science of Health. Part 3. Sleep. There remains still to mention the most mysterious and one of the most important of all the factors relating to vital energy. A man may live for weeks or months without food, but he cannot live many days without sleep. Without sleep his energy quickly fails, however much food he may take and however much oxygen may be at his disposal. Why sleep should be so essential it is difficult to understand. Theoretically speaking, so long as digestion, circulation and respiration work, energy should be produced indefinitely, but in some way sleep is necessary for the continuance of vigour, especially as regards the brain and nervous system. The loss or partial loss of consciousness characteristic of sleep is probably due to a complex of causes, relaxation of certain blood vessels, accumulation of waste products, some kind of fatigue blockage in the nerves of sensation, and during the period of sleep the vital organs work more feebly and more oxygen is absorbed than expended. Sound deep sleep is essential if a man is to enjoy full vigour, and a great deal of lassitude and lack of energy is due to too late hours and too little sleep. Lucky men who can sleep as long as they wish should avail themselves of the gift, and not attempt to add to the length of their days by stealing a few hours from the night. But in many cases short hours of sleep are quite compatible with sound health. Brain workers especially seem able to maintain mental energy without many hours of sleep, and indeed sleep requirements seem to vary to a large extent in various individuals. When actual insomnia occurs, physical and mental energy diminish and every effort should be made to get at the cause underlying the condition, for insomnia is not so much a disease as a symptom. The cause may be indigestion, fever, physical or mental fatigue, or even surplus energy. When any obvious causes such as these are found, the first thing to do is to remove them. Sleeping draughts, at all times very dangerous and pernicious things, are quite out of place in such cases. What is the use of giving an opiate to a man whose brain has been disturbed all night by messages of remonstrance from an overladen stomach? If insomnia be due to undigested food, the right and reasonable way to avoid it is by going to bed with an empty stomach. If again, as is sometimes the case, the brain is kept awake by a stomach requesting more food, a little food will be better than any superphoric. If a man cannot sleep because he is not tired enough, the obvious remedy is to give him more work to do. And if he cannot sleep because he is too tired, the remedy of less work is obvious. Excitement, often quite pleasurable excitement, especially excited suspense, will often cause wakeful nights, and the cure, of course, is to avoid excitement, so far as possible, especially towards bedtime. People temperamentally excitable are particularly liable to insomnia, 
and in certain cases the only cure is the persistent cultivation of a calmer and more phlegmatic character excitement acts to a large extent by quickening the action of the heart and thus preventing the reduction of the blood flow to the brain which is one of the essential preliminaries of sleep and even apart from excitement conditions of circulation sometimes cause excess of blood in the brain and this can frequently be relieved by giving warm baths or hot drinks much more troublesome are cases of insomnia due to what is called worry worry is some unpleasant or irritating thought that possesses or obsesses the mind very often some pressing problem that insists on solution to a certain extent worry is inevitable life for most people is full of problems that require to be solved and that required persistence and concentration for their solution in the darkness and silence of the night these problems intrude and start trains of thought lying ready in the subconscious mind and once these are started they turn the brain into a weary and sleepless sisyphus there is no remedy for such worry insomnia except to keep the mind during the day as much as possible from worrying matters it must be noticed too that insomnia itself is apt to become a worry the sleepless man lies awake worrying about his insomnia and his emotional concentration on the subject renders sleep quite impossible possibly more harm is done to a man's health by worry over insomnia than by insomnia itself and if a sleepless man can lie quiet keep his mind on pleasant topics and take the whole matter philosophically he will suffer very much less from loss of sleep than if he tosses about in frets and laments we have talked of worry in relation to insomnia but quite apart from insomnia too persistent preoccupation with the dark side of life with its anxieties and sorrows and problems reduces health and energy the energy which ought to go to the vital organs is in some way inhibited and indigestion and other symptoms of organic disorder follow it is a man's duty both to himself and to other people to look so far as possible at the bright side of things and to cultivate the power of setting worries aside and of rising superior to at least the petty annoyances of daily life to a great extent avoidance of worry is a matter of the education of the will but it is certain that a man living a healthy open-air life is more able to throw off cares and troubles than a man whose vitality has been reduced by unhealthy habits not only worry in the usual sense of the term but all unpleasant emotions have a pernicious effect on the health fear hatred envy disappointment all depress and disturb the vital functions a man suffering from a grievous disappointment loses his appetite and in india a man suspected of theft is given rice to chew since if he be guilty fear will dry up his mouth and render him unable to swallow the dry rice and if it be true that worry and unpleasant emotions depress vitality it is equally true that joyful emotions have the opposite effect a merry heart goes all the day your sad tires in a mile is sound physiology and equally sound physiology is expressed in a proverb he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast it is not enough to resist depressing emotions 
a man who is to make the most of himself must seek happy experiences. Health is necessary for happiness, but also happiness increases health. 4. We have stated that great energy alone does not constitute health, that the energy must be harmoniously coordinated to useful and, so far as possible, intellectual and spiritual ends. But the useful coordination of energy is the function of the nervous system, and in a sense, the nervous system is the real man. There is a preparation in the Royal College of Surgeons which shows the whole nervous system of a man dissected out from his body, and if there were some way of supplying such a nervous system with food and oxygen, we would have a conscious being that might be called a man. But take away the nervous system and the other organs and tissues would never be anything like a man. Thought, sensation and the regulation and coordination of the muscular movements, voluntary or involuntary, reside in the brain, spinal cord and nerves, including, of course, the wonderful nerve structures called the special senses. Without this nervous hierarchy, not a single useful movement could be performed, and life itself would be impossible. For without exquisitely regulated and coordinated action, the circulation and breathing could not go on. This wonderful system is to a certain extent, as we have already suggested, under the control of the will, and through it a man is able to have a good deal of influence indirectly on other organs not under will control, otherwise it would not be much use to write on the science of health and again through the relationship of these to the nervous system he can influence the nervous system itself. Thus, through the coordinating power of his nervous system, a man can feed himself, feed his heart and lungs, and through them can feed his brain and nerves. Accordingly, though the nervous system stands pre-eminent above all other systems guiding and ruling them, it is dependent on the health of the other systems, and its health can be promoted chiefly by the measures which we have already mentioned when talking of the digestive, respiratory and circulatory systems. It is, however, particularly resistant to ill health. So long as there are food and oxygen to be had, the nervous system will clutch them, and it is the last organ in the body to suffer from undernutrition. It is essential that this should be so, for if the nervous system failed first, all the functions of the body would become chaotic and anarchical. When McSwiney starved himself, his mind remained active and clear almost to the very end. On the other hand, the nervous system, especially the intellectual faculties of the brain, is easily disordered by certain poisons circulating in the blood, such poisons as the toxins of fever, alcohol, opium, Indian hemp. But the chief hygienic peculiarity of the nervous system depends on the peculiar function of the brain as the organ of thought. The health of the brain as an organ of thought depends not only on air and food, but also on education. The brain feeds on books and on thoughts quite as much as on bread and butter. A single paragraph in a book may wind it up for days, and a few words on a telegraph form may unlock thousands of calories of energy. Its coordinating, its guiding, its initiative powers, its capacity for happiness, and its capacity for giving happiness can be multiplied a thousandfold by education. 
mental hygiene. There is thus a hygiene of the mind as well as a hygiene of the body. To achieve the ideal of mens sana in corpore sano, a healthy mind and a healthy body, it is necessary to apply the fruits of the knowledge gained not only in the realm of physiology, but also in that of psychology. The mind, no less than the body, requires to be properly exercised and properly reposed, and it must be given intellectual and emotional food of a suitable kind. How important this is considered may be judged from the recent formation of a distinguished National Council of Mental Hygiene to promote the study of the subject and the dissemination of knowledge on the questions involved. In the particular field of industry also, we have the young science of industrial fatigue. The word is used not in its ordinary sense of weariness, but in the scientific sense of reduced efficiency. In this we find attention given, both from a physiological and a psychological point of view, to many problems of economy of effort, of monotony, of rhythm, of vocational selection, of spells of work, and the introduction of rest pauses, of factory conditions, and the like. And as our knowledge on these points increases, so does our capacity to improve the well-being and happiness of the worker on the one hand, and our industrial output on the other. Nervous ill-health begins when a man's nervous system is so readily and so violently excited by stimuli that the nerve power is wasted and exhausted, or when a man has such deficient nerve power that his nerve responses to stimuli are no longer easy and effective. In the first case, we say the man is nervous or neurotic. He's always on the jump excitable, irritable, generally nervy, and periods of exhaustion alternate with periods of excitement. In the second case, the man is nervously weak or neurasthenic. He's always tired, he lacks interest in life and initiative and enthusiasm. The grasshopper is a burden and all the vital processes are depressed. Closely allied to these two conditions is hysteria. Both neurotic and neurasthenic conditions are, to a certain extent, innate. The nervous system, more than any other system, is born, not made. And some men are born with over-excitable nervous systems, and some with too little nerve vigour. But both conditions can be bettered to a very great extent, both by the education of the will and by the hygienic measures which we have already detailed in dealing with the other systems. Under proper hygienic treatment, most neurotics can acquire steadier, more stable nerves, and most neurasthenics larger reserves of nerve energy. In talking of health, whether of body or mind, it must always be recognised that there is no such thing as standard health, no such thing as absolute health. Different men are healthy in different ways and to different degrees, and it is necessary for each man to find out his own way of health and acquiesce in his own limitations. A three-horsepower engine will not lift an aeroplane nor drive along a liner, but it will work usefully and harmoniously in a motor bicycle. And one of the commonest causes of breakdown in health is the employment of three-horsepower engines to do 300-horsepower work, either mental or physical. 
The test and proof of health, indeed, will be found not so much in the amount of work done as in its smooth, facile efficiency, and in the happiness and pleasure found in its performance. Man is more than a working machine, and his work is to be judged not merely by its value in calories, but also by its emotional quality, and by the happiness it brings both to the worker and his fellow beings. 5. Bacteria, the fruitful source of disease. Although we are dealing here with health of the body, and not with its diseases, it is perhaps not going beyond our subject to remark on the great advance in recent years in the science of medicine, and in our knowledge of the human body. The discoveries connected with the ductless glands, and the part they play in the regulation of the body, have been referred to elsewhere. As explained in the article on biology, the ductless glands are organs which pour their secretions directly into the blood. Many of these secretions, or hormones, have an extraordinary power over the growth of the body, its rate of working and the cooperation of its parts. Many distressing conditions may result from the failure of one or other of the ductless glands to pour its proper secretions into the bloodstream. The whole chemistry of the body is deranged, but the trouble may often be remedied, as in the case of diseased thyroid, by administration of secretions prepared from the glands of animals. Bacteria have also been dealt with in a previous chapter. The increasing mastery of the microbe, that fruitful source of disease, is one of the triumphs of modern medical science. These injurious microscopic organisms invade the human body, liberate poisons and work incalculable havoc. By their activity they set up dangerous fevers, they also break down membranes and cause structural injuries of a serious kind. The science of bacteriology is young. While there remain still undiscovered many germs of particular diseases, hundreds of specific germs, unsuspected only a few years ago, have been discovered, and their life histories have been unveiled in the laboratory of the bacteriologist. There is a long list of diseases which are caused by infections with microorganisms, bacteria on the one hand, and protozoa, or single-celled animals, on the other. Thus, tuberculosis, typhoid or enteric fever, diphtheria, tetanus or lockjaw, anthrax, cholera, bacillary dysentery, and cerebrospinal or spotted fever are all caused by bacteria, each particular species causing its particular disease, while malaria, amoebic dysentery, and sleeping sickness are of protozoan origin. Other diseases remain which must be certainly ascribed to microorganisms of some kind, but for which no cause has yet been identified with certainty. These include scarlet fever, measles, whooping cough, and influenza. Probably the organisms in these cases are even more minute than those hitherto observed, and evidence is accumulating, as recently published researchers show, that there are organisms capable of passing through the fine filters used by bacteriologists. Luckily in the body we have two great counteractives to these organisms of disease. In the first place there are the phagocytes, wandering white cells in the blood which engulf and digest microbes. In the second place, the body has the power of producing antidotes against the deadly poisons, which the intruders liberate in their victim's blood. 
In various ways it is possible to increase the protective efficiency of both these natural defences of the body. In many cases it not only happens that a cure is effected, but that future attacks of the same disease are rendered either impossible or less serious. A dirty pinprick, for instance, may be the means of introducing into the body a host of deadly microorganisms. In the blood, their numbers quickly multiply, until where there were thousands, there are millions. A series of changes takes place in the blood and blood vessels. Soon there is a state of warfare in the body, a battle between the phagocytes, or white cells, the word phagocyte means eating cell, and the invading germs take place. The white blood cells squeeze through the vessel walls and, in their thousands and millions, gather round a point of disturbance. Rapidly the jelly-like cell alters its shape, steadily surrounds one microbe after another, until its body contains ten, fifty, one hundred or more. If the conditions are favourable to the white cells, the battle goes on, until every microbe is absorbed by a cell until the exudation, solid or liquid, is all reabsorbed, and until the circulation of the blood in the part again becomes normal. The issue, however, may be very different. The numbers of the invading germs may be too great. Then millions of white cells die in the struggle, their bodies perhaps breaking up and liberating small quantities of antitoxin. The microcoxi, minute germs, too die in their millions, but their rate of increase is enormous, and they continue to advance. To meet them come millions more of the white cells, absorbing their enemies, digesting them, and producing the antidote to the poison of the microbes. If the microbes continue to gain the upper hand and invade the larger vessels of the body, the battle continues there. If the microbe meets its antidote, everywhere its warfare fails. If, however, the conditions are still unfavourable to the white cells, the microbes, dying in millions, produce more millions to continue the invasion. The war goes on until every defence is broken down. Then the slight inflammation of the pricked finger ends in a fatal blood poisoning. We have said that the body has the power of producing anti-substances to the poisons introduced by microorganisms. These substances are of various kinds. They include antitoxins, which are antidotes to the poisons of the disease, lysins and agglutinins, which help directly to destroy the invading germs, and the opsonins, a word meaning a sauce or seasoning, discovered by Sir Amroth Wright. These last seem to act indirectly by aiding the phagocytes, apparently making it easier for these white cells to take in and digest the particular organisms concerned. Artificial Immunity One attack of certain diseases confers a passing or permanent immunity against another attack of the same kind, but although this fact is ancient knowledge, its inner meaning is as yet by no means fully understood. But acquired immunity, the immunity which one attack gives against a subsequent infection, has suggested a line of attack on infecting microorganisms. The invading organisms produce a toxin, or a mixture of several toxins, and in response to this, the body, as we have seen, produces an antitoxin, an antidote to the bacterial poison. 
But the process takes time, and the toxin always has a start and may even get control irrevocably. The question arises, therefore, as to whether the body cannot be made to produce its antitoxin beforehand. Then the further question, cannot the antitoxin be made outside the body altogether and held in readiness to be injected as soon as the disease becomes manifest? The earliest answer to the first of these questions dates from long before the era of modern scientific knowledge. Artificial infection from mild cases of smallpox was practiced in the East centuries ago as a protection against possible attacks of a severer nature, and the custom was introduced into this country early in the 18th century. It has since been superseded, however, by Jenner's discovery of vaccination, a safer method in which the artificial infection is with calf lymph containing the virus of cowpox, possibly a mild form of the same disease. Vaccination and improved sanitation have together banished smallpox from this country as a serious plague. The modern discovery and identification of the organisms that cause many diseases have led to a further modification in certain cases. In the protective inoculation against typhoid fever, for instance, it is dead bacteria, killed by heat sterilization, which are used. This process implies the administration of a definitely limited amount of toxin. The organisms not being alive cannot multiply in the body or produce further quantities of the poison. Anti-typhoid inoculation has proved immensely valuable, especially in the case of troops on active service, as was shown in the late war, although the immunity given in this case disappears after a few years. There are, of course, obvious practical limitations to the protective inoculation of entire populations against numerous diseases, and wider possibilities are opened up by the discovery of means of producing antitoxins and the like outside the human body. It is not possible to manufacture these substances artificially, for their subtle chemistry still eludes our research to a large extent, but they can be produced in the bodies of animals. The principle is the same as that already described, except that it is an animal which is inoculated with the killed bacteria or the toxins of the disease. Horses are commonly employed because of their conveniently large size. Gradually increasing doses are given so that the animal's health is not impaired, and when its blood is rich in anti-substances, quantities are drawn off from time to time. The blood serum is separated from the solids and subjected to various processes of purification and testing, and it is then made up for use on human patients who contract the disease. The diphtheria antitoxin is the best-known example of this kind. It is purely an antitoxin, an antidote to the poisons produced in the body by the bacteria, and does not kill the organisms themselves. These are dealt with by antiseptic treatment of the centre of infection in the throat. In the case of some other diseases, however, sera are used containing anti-substances which are effective not only against the toxins, but also against the invading organisms. Without going further into the question, it will suffice to say that there is an ever-increasing number of diseases which are yielding to protective or curative measures based on the principle of acquired immunity. One important point, however, must be made clear. 
immunity is not general against all or a number of diseases, but is quite specific. Immunity against one disease does not involve immunity against others. Each must be dealt with separately, and each presents to science its own peculiar difficulties. End of section 22